Now, I have found that the subject of beauty can be a uniter. We do share a, a sense of beauty, and this is an evolutionary thing, I believe, that comes from how uh, we appreciate landscapes and settings that are life-enhancing. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project at the Post Carbon Institute, in which we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, asking them all our same question. In the midst of all that seems to be going awry, what do you see could possibly go right? And my guest today is John DeGraff. He's an author, a filmmaker, a speaker, and an activist with a mission to help create a happy, healthy, and sustainable quality of life for America. He has three books, one called Affluenza, another one called Take Back Your Time, and a third called What's the Economy For Anyway? Uh, he's a documentary filmmaker with over 40 documentaries and many more shorter films to his name and many, many awards for his films. And his most popular film is the film Affluenza. And he has also done a film running out of time uh, and many, many more, many, many more. Uh, but I worked on Affluenza with him. He founded or took a leadership role in many movements, including the happiness movement and the Take Back Your Time initiative and the Simplicity Forum. And to quote myself from his website, uh, I'd follow John DeGraff anywhere and often have. He is a consummate activist and human, brilliant, kind, dedicated, fair, and always working on cross-cutting issues that are high-minded, full-hearted, and canny politically. And I invited him to be my guest on what could possibly go right specifically for that, for his deep bench of experience as an activist and his ability to find voices on all sides, political sides that support the cultural issues that he's been singling out, the, the lack of enough time for family, friends and, and love, um, the lack of beauty, the lack of simplicity, the complexity of modern life. Uh, these are all cross-cutting social issues that he's found the full range of voices for. So here's my interview with John DeGraff. Okay, welcome, John, to What Could Possibly Go Right. Uh, you and I have worked together and in tandem for, I think, over th three decades uh, to move the world towards sustainability, simplicity, and well-being. And, you know, some of the projects we've worked on together are Affluenza, your wonderful film, Affluenza, the Simplicity Forum, the organization that was going to take simplicity over the top as a core value in this country, uh, the Center for New American Dream, uh, Take Back Your Time. And you've always picked cultural issues and found people on the left and the right, you know, secular, religious, who share a concern about it. And uh, so you are like the consummate activist that I know who seeks higher ground and common ground on really important cultural issues. Um, and I've watched you do this recently with your beauty campaign. And at this time of great polarization, when people find it almost impossible to talk to the other side about anything, I wanna hear your cultural scout observations. As you know, we're not looking for analysis of the past or your prescriptions for the future, but rather your observations about what is emerging now that people of goodwill 
can cooperate with. So here you go, John, with all that seems to be going in the wrong direction, away from a thriving and just future, what could possibly go right? Right. Uh, well, Vicki, I, you know, it's, it's hard to be incredibly uh, over the top optimistic these days because we are so polarized and so many things are, are negative and we, we seem to be in this tribal war back and forth. Uh, and so we don't seem to spend, we seem to get distracted by issues where we obviously don't see eye to eye and we, we don't find ways to start working together on the things that we do. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, I've been uh, starting to do some writing for and a lot of talking to and trying to work with um, some folks who are on the a conservative side of the spectrum, who are very religious folks, who are rural Americans, who work, uh, publish a, a, a journal called the Front Porch Republic uh, out of uh, rural Michigan. Uh, and what I find is that we've got a lot of things that are we have in common. We do have a few things that we just simply don't agree on. Uh, abortion, I think, being a key one that we're just not finding common ground on that specific issue at this point, but we've, we've agreed that it's, it's best for us to start trying to look for the things we do agree on and see how we can move forward on those things and how we can get to know each other better so that we understand each other better. And I think that's an important thing. I, I think once you make these litmus tests of this issue or that issue or this, and suddenly anybody who disagrees with you on that particular issue becomes the enemy or the opposite, uh, then you're, you're in big trouble. Now, I have found that the subject of beauty can be a uniter, that it doesn't matter if you're a conservative or a liberal, both conservatives and liberals like their gardens, they like their national parks, they like to come out and see beautiful things. And I'm talking here about natural beauty, I'm talking about built beauty, I'm not talking about cosmetics and, and personal physical beauty. But they, you know, uh, the same kinds of cities in the world, uh, particularly the, the European cities, I think of, of Venice and Florence and Rome and, and uh, uh, those cities attract lots of people for certain reasons. It's because they, people see them as beautiful and they see them as harmonious and as uh, life enhancing. One of the things I think we know about beauty is that it's, only barely true that beauty is in the eye of, a, of the beholder. It is to a minor degree, of course, and we do have our differences. And in fact, there are some differences in terms of nature between Westerners and Asians and that Westerners tend to prefer wilder landscapes and Asians may prefer more manicured uh, uh, gardens and things of that sort. Those are pretty minor differences because it, you only have to go to Zermatt in Switzerland or to Yosemite National Park or anywhere, and you're gonna see at least as many Asian tourists these days as you see Westerners. And Westerners love to go to Japanese gardens and things like that too. I mean, we may have these slight differences, but we do share a, a sense of beauty. And this is an evolutionary thing, I believe, that comes from um, how uh, uh, we appreciate landscapes and settings that are life enhancing, that uh, it, you know, encourage the life instincts. Uh, we find ugly those kind of things which are 
seemed to us, sometimes very subconsciously, but seemed to us life-threatening. For example, if we see an oil spill or a garbage dump or a strip mine, uh, those places actually, I think, subconsciously feel to us almost like wounds on our own body. They are threatening in the sense that they are not life-enhancing. And so when we see that we have this commonality around things like beauty, Lyndon Johnson once put it this way. He said, we may not always agree on what is most beautiful, but we all know what ugly is. Mm-hmm. And I think the, one of the issues now is that we have allowed an awful lot of, of more ugly to enter our communities. Our city. I mean, if you look at Seattle and places like that today, it, it, a lot of it is 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 a landscape that does not feel pleasant to live in, whether you're poor, rich, who, whoever you are. Uh, and so one of, the, one of the interesting sides of this, and then I, I wanna go back to your questions rather than keep talking, but there's a great piece that just came out uh, on October 8th in the New York Times. Uh, it's called To Combat Gun Violence, Clean Up the Neighborhood. And it's by by an African-American woman who's a a health expert. Uh, Her name, let me grab it here, is Eugenia South. She's assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and faculty director of the Urban Health Lab. And what she argues here is that simply by cleaning up vacant lots, getting rid of graffiti, getting rid of really ugly uh, places, you know, with, with and garbage in the streets and trash and litter and stuff, and in, and greening those neighborhoods, turning them into even the smallest of parks, but parks with some grass and some green space and some trees. Uh, they have found in experiments in Philadelphia that they're able to reduce gun violence and homicides by about one third simply by changing the look of the neighborhood. Nobody wants those kind of neighborhoods that are, you know, people, people agree on that. I think they, they and those are, are kind of things that we can work on together. We can, we can support that. I, I, I see very little indication that people try to do that or think about the broader implications um, that in fact, those kinds of changes are so important. I'm so John, let's, let's flip over though, because yeah. Because what I'm asking you really is, you say you see very little indication, but I'm asking you, what indications do you see, whether it's on beauty or anything else, where you say that, you know, just like this article, that's something that we can work with, you know, despite the fact that there's so much divisiveness around, there's things that we can work with. And what are you seeing emerging in this time pandemic, all of this emerging that you you really feel enthused about, that we could work with this? Well, that's certainly one of them. I mean, I think that, um, boy, it, it's tough because I'm not this, hey, everything is, is great. I mean, it's hard to, but, you know, so a lot of it is, is believing what really I think can work based on the data, but I'm not seeing enough of it. But clearly things that like you were connected, certainly the the, the urban food movement, the, the, the local food movement, things like that. Lots of people really involved in that sort of thing. The permaculture, uh, there are many of these, these sort of things out there that attract people and that do bring, bring people together across these poles. Uh, I think the preservation of 
uh, and, and interest in more national parks and preserving more land. And I see this in, uh, you know, the, the new restoration of Bears Ears National Monument, for example, that these are places that we share together. And, uh, but, you know, I, I don't know that it's always gonna work. I mean, I think polarization is, is pretty serious because now we've made things so that even when we both think an idea is good, we can't stand the fact that the other person is supporting it. I mean, yeah. that, that's the really difficult, difficult thing to look at. If you talk, I think, just you know, I just want to tell you like a little story because um, I'm, I'm, I've been working on a variety of issues for a long time, and um, three things that I've worked on, you know, and sort of, you know, soldiered on, and you know, brightly encouraged people to you know, make the changes, you know, and, and very little at the scale that I've wanted to have happen has happened. But I live on this small island that is it, like, it's definitely to a red state and a blue state. Um, and there's plenty of divisiveness going on. But uh, I'm working with a local food consortium and I really see us making progress because, um, People are aware. I mean, it becomes a survival thing. It's not just nice. It's not just, ooh, farmer's markets. It's like, oh, I see supply chain issues. You know, we have to get this uh, handled. And, you know, the, the there's a naval air station at the north end. They are looking as well. You know, so I think it, it's a it's a demonstration of what you're talking about, that there are some things that are potentially unitive issues. I have the person who grows the best chickens on the island as far as I'm concerned and, and sorry about the other people who also grow chickens but I've been going to him for years um, and um, he's on the north end of the island and he's got a, he's a third generation farmer who's convinced his family to use the Joel Salatin approach to regenerative farming you know like rotational grazing you know very specific and he is following it to a D and he loves doing it and, uh, but at the beginning of the pandemic, we discovered that we are totally on different sides of that issue, but it has not disturbed our relationship around chickens. Good. And I don't know, you know, I don't have a conviction that either of us is gonna change our minds at all. He tried to change mine and I was like, are you kidding? I looked at his websites and I'm like, I don't, but I have a feeling that if we have a bond around these baseline provisioning things, you know, and that's what like the beauty is, you know, we all live here and here is going down the tubes and we want here to kind of like start to restore. So where do you see like that restoration happening, just bubbling up the, do you see that in our, um, our common spaces? Do you pick up signals on the news? What are you seeing? Well, I mean, yes and no. I, I certainly, there's a lot more stuff out there about that. I think in academia, we're seeing a lot more writing. We're seeing a lot more discussion of everything from, from uh, sustainable living, simplicity, uh, all of those, those kind of things. It's perking up in the system. And you, we're, we're seeing people who were somewhat polarizing, I think, in the past. And this is a very positive sign for me for example, is, is to read David Brooks these days, who was mm -hmm. someone I used to think of as a pretty polarizing 
very conservative figure who now I see as somebody who is working his butt off, frankly, to try to bring people together across these kinds of boundaries and to get us to think of, of the common good and our common society. I think that's, that's very positive. Uh, I do think it is possible if we can somehow get away from the idea that just because the person who suggested something disagrees with us on a bunch of other things, it's a bad idea. And I, I see an awful lot of that. It's surprising to me. You know, oh, he's a Republican. He couldn't possibly have a good idea. Oh, he's a Democrat. He's some, he's a, he's a lib. So that idea is to, you know, that must be some sort of cons conspiracy and, and needs to be rejected out of hand. Let me give you one example. I am no fan, as you might suspect, of Rudy Giuliani. But I do believe that Rudy Giuliani in New York made a very important positive difference when he said, you got to start taking care of the small stuff. When the windows get cracked, fix them. When the graffiti is put on the trains, clean it up. Uh, when the garbage is around, clean it up. Make things so that uh, they they are livable for people, and you will make a city that is more together and more harmonious. And there is no question that crime declined immensely during that period. Whatever else I currently think about Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, I accept that those things happen, and I think it's the same as, as Philadelphia. I think sometimes we look for the wrong things. It's either, it, either we... we you know, we want more police, more cops, more this, or we want to defund or abolish the police. When we're thinking that maybe the solution to a lot of these things isn't either more or less police. I mean, we may need more in certain cases and less in others, but there, there are experiences we wouldn't even think about trying. Let me give you another example of a, a real positive thing I see happening in our society today. It's a thing called Parks Rx. So we are learning now, again, how much access to nature, green space, open space means to people, to communities, and especially to low-income people who have been deprived of this sort of thing. So there's a great movement about getting young, young people, and particularly minority and, and, and poor young people, out to the parks and, and to available green space. The Children's Hospital in Oakland, for California, for example, is a big example of this. It's a Iranian-born um, doctor there who started this whole movement that's had an enormous effect in reducing stress for poor kids. And again, these kind of things can reduce violence, they can reduce conflict, and so forth. So I think, uh, I think that's, a, that's a, a real positive part. I think Parks Rx is a great idea. Uh, again, uh, I, I look to beauty and I look to the, the healing values of nature. I'm excited about things, uh, uh, movements like uh, Outdoor Afro or Latino Outdoors, which are um, working to get children of color into, out into the parks and into the natural world so that they can enjoy it in the same way that the rest of us have for so long. I think, I think that's very exciting work. I interviewed Rue Mapp, who founded Outdoor Afro, amazing woman. Uh, and what she's doing is, I think, so important. And it is saying these, we need to heal. And these are some of the ways we can begin to heal. It's not all just about getting the right counselor, the right mental health program, uh, and, uh, and spending a lot of money on mental health, although I think we need to spend more money on mental health. But there are other things we don't think of, just in terms of changing our community. 
one, one other example on that end. We don't understand the importance of beauty to such a degree. I didn't understand it either. Uh, we started in 2010, uh, Laura Musikansky, my dear friend, and I started the Happiness Alliance, a happiness initiative at the time, now Happiness Alliance. And we have a survey that people can take that look at various domains of life to see how satisfied they are in those domains and how they lead to overall life satisfaction. Beauty was never one of those domains. We never thought about it. It didn't mm -hmm. come in. It didn't come in because the country of Bhutan, which started this, didn't have it in its list of domains. And there's a good reason for that. But life is so beautiful in Bhutan. You go to Bhutan, you're simply surrounded all the time by nature, art, uh, and, <laughs> and everything in that regard. It's kind of like you're swimming in the sea. But here it's different. So Gallup did a study. This is one of the most important studies, I think, out there um, in 2014 called The Soul of the Community. And in that study, Gallup looked at various 26 cities around the country uh, that have night. It was the Knight Foundation that funded. They have night newspapers. They range in size from Philadelphia with 2 million people and San Jose with a million down to Aberdeen, South Dakota with about 20,000 and everything in between. They asked people there the questions about 10 aspects of life and what ended up being most important to them. And those included things like public safety, like schools, like economics, uh, like um, tra transit, congestion, and so forth. And what Gallup found amazingly was that in all 26 cities, there were three things that were at the top. In all 26, there was no variance. Schools were fourth, but they weren't in the top three. The top three, and they did vary a little bit from community to community, but they were about exactly the same, were number one, uh, social and cultural, affordable social and cultural events that could bring people together mm. in a sense of community. So we know how important relations and connection is to mental health and to, to happiness. So that was one. Number two, believe it or not, was whether people felt that their city was tolerant and open and diverse and open to, to other people, and also whether they felt like they had a chance to really participate in the life of their community, or whether there was an old power structure that handled everything and made all the decisions, or whether they could really get in into that community and be active. And number three was aesthetics, that they felt that they live in a beautiful place with good access to nature parks and green space. They were all relatively the same, all three of these points, but they were, were huge for people's sense of, of both life satisfaction and the sense that they would want to stay living in that community. Uh, didn't get much play, but I think all of us need to think about precisely those things as we think about policy change and as we think about other things that we want to do. Uh, the University of South Carolina study found that in seven cities, large cities around the world that it studied, the number one correlation to people's sense of life satisfaction was whether they felt that, that they lived in, a, in an attractive or beautiful environment. You know, number one, on top of everything else. So I think this is an issue that we both don't give enough attention to and that can really bring us together. I don't find too many conservatives who like ugly. It's a really interesting point that you're making. It's that um, there's some popular song, I'm gonna botch it, about you don't know what you've got till you lose it. 
Oh yeah, yeah. The Joni Mitchell. Yeah, and uh, until it's gone, Something you don't know what you got until it's gone. And yeah. in a way, there are background things that that I think part of what's like the nervousness in our society. There's background certainties that you didn't have to think about. You know, I mean, you didn't have to put your gas mask on to go out. We don't still don't have to do that. But there's background certainties that you know you weave your life on. You know, the tree-lined street. Da, 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 da. So it's changes and it's changes for the worse in these background, these absences, things that go away. Um, and so we don't, you know, it's like you honestly, I was like, beauty, he's doing a campaign on beauty. Like, I don't know how to campaign on beauty, you know. But I think you're you're so right that um there's a a har- a harm there's a need for harmony you know there's i think that's what the these points are saying is that i i don't know if we have something installed in our brains that are harmonizers i think we've got mirror neurons we've got a lot of social embedded social biology you know that cues us into our environment because we're not we're not isolated beings we don't survive through isolation we survive through connection and i i wonder if this is the 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 polarization is is exacerbated by this sense this irritation that uh, this whatever this is let's you know this let's create a fourth part in the brain <laughs> like the brain stem and the amygdala and stuff like that there's this other thing maybe it's the hippocampus, you know, that is, or the pineal gland, you know, that, that is the harmonizing one. And so we're, we're seekers of harmony. We really are. We're seekers of harmony that are very disharmonious now. And I think you can see our polarization in a way as an upset at, at the lack of harmony, you know, and, and of course our actions sort of like you punching in a movie screen because you don't like the movie and then you make the movie worse, you know? So I just, keying off of what you said, because I'm, I am always looking for these clues about how, how we can both live our own lives and, and operate as change makers, you know, or citizens, whatever you want to say, so that, so that we have this other toolkit, this sort of like um, bringing, bringing it together, the sort of the toolkit of the, the social healer, if you will. And I think what you said too about healing, healing has to do with things that are disharmonious, they're out of balance, they're not right with one another, and, and we need to put them right with one another. And um, beauty is a beauty is a clue, you know, it's an entry point, just like I was saying earlier about local food. So go ahead. So here's another one. Um, and I'm seeing this developing now more and more. Partly as a result of COVID. There's some other good things that have come from COVID. A lot more people out in the natural world. In some ways, too many in some places. So we're getting real crowding in our parks and things. And we clearly, now we're going to need to create more parks and more open space. And I'm all for that. But that's been driven by COVID. People have gotten out because outdoors was safer than being indoors collected with large numbers of people. So they've gotten out. If you go to North Cascades National Park, I mean, the numbers of people there are much bigger. Mount Rainier, anywhere around here in the parks, the, the number of people who are enjoying those parks of all races. Uh, is bigger uh, by far than it used to be. And it's a great thing, but it also can overload us if we don't think about what else to do. 
A second thing that has really come out as a result of COVID is that if people have found that they don't have to work 40 hours a week somewhere in an office, uh, you know, and that we now can really start thinking about leisure time, which I've been pushing for a long time and in the wilderness in some ways. I mean, I've advocated for vacation time for America for these kind of, I, you know, I wrote a bill that a congressman introduced uh, to give Americans vacation time. It went absolutely nowhere. I've worked on uh, family leave, sick leave. Well, now suddenly these things are, are all coming back. There's a real push for a four-day work week, all kinds of organizations. There's a new bill in Congress by Mark DeCano, uh, Democratic representative from Los Angeles for a four-day work week. And it's not seen as nuts anymore. Big companies are experimenting with it around the world and finding that actually when people work four days, they're healthier, they're happier, and they're at least as productive, sometimes even more productive. I'm glad you brought that up. I don't know why I didn't steer our conversation there because I find it fascinating and, and still somewhat inexplicable, this whole process of that people are not willing to go back into the workplace and fill the, the bottom tier jobs that they were willing to fill before. It's almost like they, they had, how are you gonna keep them down in the, you know, the, <laughs> the bits and bites farm after they've seen you know, a stimulus check or after they've seen not working for a while, after the, you know, and there's lots of downsides to it and people have been trying to deal with their kids, et cetera, et cetera. Um, huge stresses. But there's a, you know, people have gotten a whiff of freedom, the story of, you know, I am a good person if I'm working 40 hours a week or 60 or 80, you know, that story has gotten disrupted. And you and I have worked on disrupting that story for a very long time. And here it is. And we're seeing the result that that people do not, they're going to need more compensation for surrendering their time and service to money. So yeah, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, well, I think that's true. And, you know, it can, it can, uh, all of these things can have their bad side as well as their good side in that certain things are maybe are, are not getting done that we enjoy or would like to experience and such. But, but overall, I think this is a very healthy thing. And the one thing when I talk to conservatives, uh, which I try to do as much as I can and try to have find common ground, it is admittedly harder when people have become tribal, when they become hardcore, when it's not just conservative, but it's like Trump, the guy, or something like this. Or mm-hmm. like, you know, it's become like identity rather than this is what I believe, think. And, and, and uh, so it's harder now. But one of the things that I, I do find has always been a good thing is um, this time issue that uh, conservatives may not agree with me about the prescription in terms of government rules or laws or things for leave, but they do agree that we're working too much and it is unhealthy for our families and for our, for our health, for our kids, for all those things. I get very common agreement. Uh, and some of the best response to my ideas around things like with simplicity, which you, you have done such a great job on, and time and leisure have actually, are actually come in the South. You know, uh, the time thing, Southerners have experienced in a much more shortened period than those of us in the industrial North, this sudden change and time shift in which 
you're working harder and harder and faster and faster. So the sort of more leisurely life of the South, poorer, but more friendly and more open and more neighborly and all that, that's disappeared in places like Atlanta in a very short time. And so those, those folks see that. They understand it in a way that some of us in the North don't. You know, this is confirming what I'm noticing here. You know, in the last number of years, I've worked on, you know, affordable housing, local food and, and, and climate change. And, and on all three areas that have been mired in, you know, sort of <laughs> mired in, uh, what do you call it? You know, well, you just could call it resistance, but you could also call it manipulated resistance from who knows where, uh, are moving. These things are moving now that weren't moving. And I can see that what you're talking about, about the nature and leisure and time and simplicity and time enough for love and family, all of these things that we've been working on for so long, somewhat in the wilderness, because they were background things that people thought, oh, no, that's not a problem because we have that. And now that there, these, there's a shorter supply of of the things that we assumed will always be there. I think that these things that we've been working on, there are there there's an openness and I, I find that exciting. Who knows how I think we have to participate with a great deal of forgiveness and humility <laughs> for ourselves and other people, you know. Um, just and just bring forth I just feel like there's a this is a moment when we're bringing forth our best again. Well, and I agree with you, absolutely. And, and I think we need to be innovative in what we think, how we approach certain things. For example, I, I think climate, the climate crisis is the greatest existential crisis we face. I think we understand that. I think that's becoming more and more clear with the floods and the fires and the storms and the, the horrible weather events and the, and the warming. I mean, it was got 109 in Seattle this summer. Who'd have thunk? I mean, right. that's just incredible 116 in portland so that's going on but people are different about it you know how do we do this in a way that doesn't they're worried about the economy they're worried about this they're worried about that and so the solar of course is one answer and electric and certainly seeing many more people going for electric cars for those kind of things that's a positive thing but it's 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 um it's also maybe a little cold for some people and, and it doesn't necessarily help everybody it's, it's concentrated also more of the wealth on the West Coast. But let, let me give a different example. What if we were to go back to the old CCC, the climate, climate, uh, Civilian Climate Corps that Biden is talking about, which I think is a splendid idea, and we said, let's make it possible for the coal miners in West Virginia who can't keep mining coal. It's not profitable for one thing, and number two, it's terrible for the climate. Uh, we can't just tell those people, go to college, get a degree and move to the city. They have long time cultures and families and things and communities that they are tied to. Why don't we focus instead on a restoration program that says, let's regenerate Appalachia. Let's plant, do what the CCC did and plant a diverse canopy of trees and reclaim these stripped off mountaintops uh, and fill right. them in in a good way and plant, there's so much work there that can be done. Right. And it's work that will feel good to people. Uh, 
People in the 30s, you hear the stories all the time that we're in the CCC, that it was the great thing in their lives. It gave them a sense of building America, of making a difference in the country. And it also gave them enormous companionship with people from different places. That's what they, you had, you know, these kids from Brooklyn, suddenly you're kids with kids from Iowa and kids from, uh, uh, you know, a ghetto somewhere, whatever. They're all, they're thrown together in these CCC camps. They learn to understand each other. Uh, we, we really need more of this. And, and so I know it's starting to happen, but I want to advocate for more of it. Yes, I mean, it, definitely we need to put, I, I don't want to say gas in the tank, you know, we need to put wind in the sails of, uh, I mean, and that's part of what possible, what could possibly go right is about is like noticing where the, you know, watching the waves and the wind and the horizon and noticing where, you know, where to tack next, you know, because uh, you can't just make assumptions anymore. And so I, I think we should probably wind up because this is, you know, yeah. time, but I really like the clues that have surfaced um, in our conversation uh, about um, you know, good thing, bad thing. <laughs> Is it going in the right direction or the wrong direction? Well, who knows, you know, uh, because in every circumstance we can work with what's, what's there and bring out the best in it. Uh, and I don't mean to be Pollyanna, but I just mean that it's a, it's a way of thinking about, you know, what's possible inside this thing that might look like, you know, a boarded up building in a, and a, you know, a garbage filled empty lot. So it's, it's that attitude. And I, I really appreciate this conversation, John. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, I appreciate it too, Vicki. Thank you. You've done wonderful things all for years and years. And it's exciting to, to be connected with you through all of these things. So, so keep up the good work. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Cher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.